Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. Hello, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, Ariana, and the entire team. I'm Casper Tech-Kyle. I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, an Owlpost edition. Welcome back to the hot seat, Matt. Thank you. Last time, you were in conversation with Vanessa during an Owlpost, and now we get to outshine her because <laughs> she's away and we're here. That makes me nervous. I don't, I don't know how I feel about it. I'm happy to be here. Let's just say that. What our listeners don't know is that, Matt, you were my field ed supervisor for the podcast that I did before Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was even a glint in Vanessa's eye. That's right. And in fact, I think an alternate history would be that the glint was in my eye <gasps> and I suggested it to you. What? During our supervision. Yes. Oh, my god! I'm gosh. pretty sure that's what happened. Is that where the idea came from? I'm fairly certain that's what happened. Well, I recall speaking to you about it and maybe Vanessa had already spoken to you about it. But I remember actually even saying you need a second person or a third person. Whoa. Maybe Vanessa. Whoa. I think it's mine. Friends. Wow. This is a breakthrough. Thank you, Matt, for this wonderful podcast project. <laughs> I'm glad to have you back. It's good to be here. So today, I wanted to talk to you about tradition. And tradition is a word that I used to really resent. I thought, really? yeah, I thought tradition was all bad. It was like old. It was stupid. It excluded people I cared about. Like tradition was something really negative. And then in part, because you are my teacher, I feel like I've really become a fan of tradition. And I've actually changed what tradition means mm -hmm. in my brain. 
So I want I want to explore that theme of tradition today because I think it's really important for us to think about as we do Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, where we're we're doing very traditional reading practices like Lectio and Chavruta, but we're doing it with a very untraditional text mm-hmm. in Harry Potter. And I want to talk about the kind of ethics of tradition. When can you borrow something? When should you not? When can you claim tradition? What parts of tradition can you leave behind and still have it be authentic? All of those kind of questions. You said you dislike tradition because it's old and bad and excluded people. And I guess I would say, I don't remember what I spoke to you about in our supervision, but I guess I would say, yes, (laughs) it is old and bad and excludes people. But I guess I think of tradition as a process, Hmm. right? Tradition tends to be used by people who want to wield it as a bludgeon as if it's one thing that never changes. And if you notice something different, then I'm going to take up my tradition and beat you about the head with it so that you do not change anything, right? But instead, if we think about tradition as like sort of this vast resource of possibility, Mm. whereby we try to envision what meaningful change could look like, how we could be honest both to our ancestors, to our memories, to our past, but also be open and aware of our present and what we envision for the future. Also open and aware of the people who maybe our traditions have excluded that we want to welcome. So instead of thinking of tradition as like a static thing, which keeps people out, which is the way it's often used, especially by people who call themselves traditionalists. Yes. Right? I think we can think of tradition as sort of this field of resources by which we can link ourselves to other human beings in different times and places and also use that to reach out to other human beings who are outside of our purview, togetherness, community, whatever. So that's the key reframe in my brain, which I was like, oh, I always saw tradition as something static, right? As something that could never change, that was walled up, that was beyond my grasp. And it was made for a different time. And exactly like you're saying, I'm now seeing it as like, oh, it's actually this this kind of river, which is always moving. And therefore, tradition actually encompasses change. A tradition cannot live unless it's changing. And one of my favorite quotes that I read about this recently was from Thomas Merton, the great Cistercian 20th century monk and and writer. And he talked about the difference between tradition in that river sense that we've just been saying and convention, which is when we do what we've always done or what our parents have done or what our communities have always done, And convention kind of loses that fire at its heart, that beating aliveness. And so, for example, like if you do walk into a church or a synagogue and you see what people are doing and it just has that kind of dead feeling, which frankly is largely my experience, I'm like, oh, that's convention. But when I think of the way that you or Stephanie or other people that I really admire who are still within a lineage and who have a religious identity, the way that they talk about or teach or engage with text, for example, that's actually very traditional, even though it looks very different from what you might expect. You said earlier on, you know, how do we know which changes are authentic? Yeah. Right? If, if tradition is a source of change, not just a static thing as opposed to convention, if it's this kind of river, to use Merton's analogy, this river flowing, how, how do we know which changes are authentic ones? That's a really good question and a difficult one. One example that I use again and again sort of in teaching and in conversation is the notion of of marriage, Mm. right? So one thing that we can observe kind of historically and factually is that what marriage means in human culture has not existed as a consistent kind of form of life across centuries, time and place, right? right? So how do we know that everything, that that two things or or three things or any number of things count as a marriage? So there's this this philosopher who I'm really interested in named Jacques Derrida. He has this argument about sort of recognizability. 
And the analogy he uses is, is of a signature. So if I sign my name, it's never the same twice, but it always means me. Yes. Right? And so there's something about the right itself has to be recognizable. The sign itself has to be recognizable to those who encounter it for the meaning to be carried. And so this is what we saw with marriage equality, right? Where gay couples would show up wearing the whole tie and like the boutonniere and the whole thing. And it was like, oh, this is a wedding. And it felt, you could feel the love. You could feel that sense of, you know, intense beauty and connection that you would expect even when it was a straight couple. And before that, we saw that with interracial marriage, for example. And then you claim that- I mean, I would say it's more the the love than the boutonnieres. (laughs) (laughs) It shows my importance. That's right. That's right. On the the aesthetic. But this is the thing, right? That this relationship is recognizable as a marriage. It starts to clue us into what is actually at the heart and core of what we mean when we say marriage. Right. And in fact, my own religious tradition has been involved in these debates about this for many years. And I've always just believed that in the end, we Christians would come around to marriage equality. Right. Because it is so obviously recognizable as what we think marriage is. And even... People who oppose it, yeah. the kind of fervor their opposition speaks to their knowing that it is so recognizable. <laughs> this is so obviously a marriage. I have to oppose it for other reasons, yeah. right? And so this is what I mean about sort of what is the thing that is recognizable. Hmm. The other thing I was going to respond to and what you said before is like when you walk into these religious communities, the, the Anglican churches of your youth, and it feels completely dead to you, someone in that church, it may feel completely alive to them, hmm. right? And so if we think about religion as a system of meaning making, hmm. then it some scholars have thought of it as analogous to language. And if you think about how language works, how the meanings of words change over time, wow. right? Like we cannot actually speak to each other unless we inherit a language which is not our own. Oh my God, that's genius. On the other hand, our actual use of the language means that our words keep developing and, and coming to new meanings, right? If you ask a linguist and you can follow the tradition, or if you listen to a, a history of the English language podcast or whatever, you can see documented the way meanings have changed over time, the way meaning moves right. through usage in human culture. And new words are invented, right? And Shakespeare invented. famously invented 10,000 new words. Exactly, right? But the, the reason those new words work is because there's something in them that's recognizable, yeah. right? There's something meaningful, right? And so we can think about, and some scholars have thought about religion this way, if it is a meaning-making process, then it also has the same sort of attachments to prior usages, but also openness to new usages. Wow, that's really beautiful. And I I love that idea of religion as a meaning-making system, right? That's what ritual is about. That's what having a calendar is about in which, you know, moments like today's the 4th of July, for those of you listening in the U.S. And this is, you know, this is now a tradition in America that celebrates independence from... Can I say the greatest country in the world, the United (laughs) Kingdom? Uh, I will not say that. We have the most to atone for. But, you know, that there are these traditions that emerge that give us a sense of like, oh, because I celebrate this thing, that makes me this kind of person, right? Whether that's a nationality, whether that's a religion, an ethnic group, all all sorts of different things. So to what extent, if we take that theme of, of, you know, a religious tradition is, is something that helps you make meaning, can we look at civic celebrations like the 4th of July or in in England, Remembrance Day or Queen's Day in Holland or whatever national festivals people have. Do we have something like a a civic religion? I'm going to answer a different question and pretend that you asked the one that I'm going to answer. (laughs) That's the greatest trick in the academics book. (laughs) I think something like a civic holiday like for the 4th of July, what that can do for us is help us, if we have this understanding of tradition that we've been talking about, what that can do for us is help us think, okay, 
what does the 4th of July mean? Mm. Or what do our celebrations convey to us about what it means? And what should it mean, right? You said that you, your country has the most to atone for. I think we're giving you a run for your money, <laughs> especially lately. And I think that, for example, if you look at contemporary 4th of July celebrations, they're highly sort of militaristic. Yeah. They celebrate freedom. They celebrate like sort of the violent conquests of peoples for the sake of freedom and fireworks, right? That's communicating something about what we say America is. Yeah, that's right. right. So if we have this tradition of a 4th of July celebration, and then we have all the resources of the history of this country and all the resources of what we think this nation is or should stand for, what other highly traditional, in this case, celebrations could we imagine? Yeah. What other forms of observance could we imagine, which would be absolutely faithful to our American tradition, but which would lift up the things yeah. which would actually bring other people in, which would honor people who are presently not honored by the way we commemorate the day. Like what if the tradition on the 4th of July was that you had to have strangers cross the threshold into your home? Exactly. Right, exactly. right? like what, what if what if that was the key celebration rather than a sort of parade with guns? Exactly, <laughs> right? We, we tend to observe on that day wars, especially, you know, the Revolutionary War, yeah. fought by white men who owned slaves, <laughs> right? Yeah. This is our celebration. Is that what we really think is most honorable about our tradition? Right. We are limiting ourselves. We think all it is is militaristic marching parades with marching band music. Right. There are other things we can do. So maybe this will be my final question, which is I really love that image of tradition as a resource, that this is a place which all of us have inherited to some extent and that all of us have the permission to reach into and draw something out to our lives today. If you look at the Christian tradition, to go, to go back to a kind of religious context, what are some of the resources in tradition that you would invite all of us, but perhaps especially those listeners who are Christian, to kind of reach into and bring into their life today? I don't know that this is actually a resource that your listeners could or should use, but a great example of why I think thinking about the tradition as more capacious terms can actually be incredibly liberating. Hmm. For most of Christian, much of Christian history, at least the last like 900 years, the death of Jesus has been mainly understood to be a punishment, hmm. right? That sin carries a blood price and Jesus had to pay it and et cetera. It's all, a downer. Yes. Yeah. All really kind of gruesome, at best gruesome stuff, at worst stuff that can be manipulated by power to- Right. To enthroned suffering. Enthroned, into, that's a great right. phrase. Enthroned suffering, valorize mm. the mm. pain of vulnerable people, right? In the 14th century, there was a woman named- Julian. Actually, she wasn't named Julian, but she's known as Julian in Norwich now. And she lived in Norwich. And she lived in Norwich. And she wrote this beautiful, she's my favorite Christian thinker. She wrote mm. this beautiful thing. It's tough getting into because it's a 14th century text and there's a lot of like black death type stuff going on in it. Right. But it's all about just sort of love. Mm. Just what if this whole thing didn't mean punishment, but just meant love. And just is this long meditation on the kind of infinite capacity for us to be loved mm. and to love others. And she was sort of forgotten and ignored for at least three or 400 years. Wow. She didn't really get a lot of attention until like the 19th and 20th century. And I think to myself, what if instead of in the 11th century, this guy Anselm proposing this idea that our suffering had to be paid for in pain, what if instead the dominant idea within Christianity for the past 900 years had been love, mm. right? But that person's still part of the tradition. Even though that hasn't happened for 900 years, Julian is an important part of the Christian tradition. And when I lift her up as a Christian theologian, which I do, 
other Christians don't get to come at me and say like, that's not traditional. Cause I get to say, no, actually yeah. she's absolutely traditional. She's been here for 900 years. We just haven't been listening, mm. right? You are not traditional enough. If the only voice you're listening to is this small select group of theologians, right? Mm. So I'm, you know, I'm a Japanese Christian as well. I'm, I have Japanese ancestry. This is something that's happening in, in much of the Christian world in Asia and Africa and South America. People are saying, well, why do we just have to use your resources to do Christian right. theology? Why can't we use our resources and use our voices? That's actually not less traditional. It's more traditional because we are all part of this tradition, right? Mm. So unless you want to have, go read Julian of Norwich, that's not actually a resource you can use, but it's a way to think about how asserting tradition is always sort of a boundary drawing exercise. And most of the people drawing those boundaries are trying to keep people out, not, not let people in. Mm. So one of the things I find most fascinating about our podcast listening community is we have a lot of people who listen who are not religious in any way, you know, but are just in, who love Harry Potter and interested in kind of reflection and and treating the text in, in the way that we do with the practices that we borrow from religious traditions. I'm curious how you would, like, where is that capaciousness line, right? Where's the line of what counts as religious practice for our listening community as an example? Like, if we're doing a Pardes practice together, are we doing a Jewish thing together? Like, does that make us kind of Jewish? If, we, if we're doing a Lexio practice together, does that make us kind of Christian? Like, where, where is that line? Is it just about what I want to identify myself with? Or is there a claim from tradition on me, which is kind of like, whoa, you know, like, I, it's not one-way traffic. Like, there's a conversation. The question about whether or not you are Jewish, right? So no, <laughs> that's, that's my first answer. I mean, one of the things about these various religious traditions is they each have their own definition and conception of what identity is and mm -hmm. what counts, right? And a very, you know, within the Jewish community, for example, very different ideas of what those boundaries are or what those markers are. So it's not a stable one definition kind of thing. That's right. So if you're taking up the traditional practices of another religion, it becomes very complicated to start identifying with that religion or arrogating that religion for oneself, especially when we're thinking about marginalized religious traditions, right. traditions which are outside of the kind of hegemonic power of Christian discourse, right? right? So I would be just uncomfortable just like making those identity claims in general. One of the things I would say is that Western Christian culture is highly ambivalent about the place of the sacred. There are long traditions. I mean, one could go all the way back to like the first and second century and see Christian people saying over and over again, the place of God is not within the walls of the church or not exclusively there. It's actually out in the world, mm -hmm. right? And so you have a figure like Martin Luther, who's this very important Reformation figure, who he writes this discourse to fathers and says, you find the word of God washing your children's diapers. Mm. So go do it, right? Mm. There's this idea that the world is the place where the holy visits us. So just go be in the world. Right. right? John Calvin wants to tear down the, the walls of the monastery so that God is not kept within these small buildings, but is out for everyone. Exactly. It's a very democratic impulse in a way. It absolutely is. Right. And so, again, I would not want to decide what counts as Christian and what doesn't. But there is within Western Christian culture this idea that the secular is sacred. Mm-hmm. So let's take one example, right? When, sure. when we do Lectio Divina together, the fourth question that we ask one another when we're reading Harry Potter is, what is the text asking of you? Now, the, the original teaching of that practice, when we go back to Guijo II, right, way back in the 12th, 13th century, his way of phrasing that question is, what is God asking you to do through this text? And so are we being traditional when we're changing the way that we're asking that question and kind of taking God out of it? 
Or are we doing something that takes away the tradition and saying, actually, we're doing a new thing. We might still call it Lectio, but like, actually, it's not the same. Where does that land within that? Continuum. I mean, I think you have to be comfortable just like not having an answer to that question, right? <laughs> That's how I've lived for the last yeah, four years. So. Because there would be people in the tradition in in Christianity for whom the practice becomes unrecognizable once you remove God from it, mm. right? There are other people within the tradition for whom the practice remains incredibly recognizable, especially if that fourth question has to do with how do I love the world better, yeah, right? Which for any Christian worth his or her salt must be exactly what, what does God want me to do mean, mm-hmm. right? And so if the efficacy or the movability of tradition depends upon its recognizability, then whether or not tradition counts is always going to be a little bit in the eye of the beholder, Yeah, right? I think the, the ethical question for oneself as one takes up these traditions is, okay, I'm the one beholding the tradition. Who does it bring in? Who does it leave out? And I think that's why, for me, it's felt like a traditional question. Because, you know, when we do live shows, we'll have people come up to us after the show, which is my favorite part, because you get to hear, you know, how everyone does this text reading at home and what the podcast means to them. And what I love is that the way we phrase the question of what is the text asking of you allows for the folks for whom that word God is is really dangerous and challenging, like it was for me for most of my life. Like that is just not a word I would have used. And it allows for the people for whom that word is a balm and a power and a joy. And when I ask that question, they can still hear that word God in there if they choose to. And so that's the test that I hold ourselves to is like, can everyone across that spectrum choose to and successfully engage with the practices as we pass them on that's in right. the same way that we've been taught them? Now, there's always going to be folks, I think, who are, who are left out to some extent. And that's that's the work of tradition, right, is to, is to continually grow who can be part of it. And I think that's right. And I was going to actually say that as well, that, that there is no human vision which is infinite, mm. right? Like however far our tradition reaches, there will be people who fall outside of it, yeah. right? And I think that tradition also has to have both kind of courage and humility. The courage to say there are those outside of our tradition and so we need to be courageous enough to think again, let go of things to bring other people in. But also the humility to say that, you know, other traditions will serve others better mm. and we should honor those traditions and the people they serve. That's beautiful. And it's okay for us to be different and just to do the best we can. My favorite phrase to describe that is, we're for anyone, but not for everyone. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Right. It's really That's up right. to you if you, want, right. if you want to join. Yeah. Yeah. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Just before we start our voicemails, I want to make sure that you all know that in a few weeks, you are going to hear the first episode of Hot and Bothered, the new podcast from Vanessa and Ariana and the whole Not Sorry Productions team. It'll be in this feed, just the first episode, on the 16th of July, but go and subscribe to it now wherever you find your podcasts. The podcast is called Hot and Bothered, and it's all about romance novel writing as a sacred practice. It's going to be amazing. So Matt, it's time to open our mailbag with all sorts of outpost messages. And the first one is from Rachel, who's responding to our episode on inheritance, which kind of touches on some of these themes of tradition. Let's take a listen. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, Ariana, and the entire team. My name is Rachel, and I just listened to the book five, chapter 33 episode on inheritance. I was so struck by this theme, and it's something I think of often. I really struggle with the inheritances I have been given by my ancestors because a lot of them I don't really want. I inherit white supremacy and racism. I inherit sexist and homophobic Christian doctrine and values and the impacts of those. I inherit the effects of generations of child sexual abuse. As a queer woman, I know that many of my ancestors would not be proud of me. Sometimes it's easier for me to focus on the women in my family, knowing that I might be living a life that they couldn't live, and and that is making them proud. But the women in my family have also perpetuated a lot of violence themselves, so that's difficult too sometimes. So I'm not out to my extended family, and I've had significant distance from them because of the abuses that occurred. So it's hard for me to think about inheritance as anything but a burden and a weight. And even though I plan on having many more years ahead of me, there's a finality to these inheritances because at this point in my life, I don't intend on having children. I love what you said, Vanessa, about one of Neville's inheritances being a sense of purpose. And I wanted to tie that with the idea of the inheritances we receive from our chosen family. When it's hard for me to feel a sense of purpose or pride from my blood inheritances, I think about those that I've received from the black and brown trans women who made it possible for me to be who I am today. I think about the strength and courage of queer and trans folks in the past who built community in the shadows in order to be themselves and dreaming of futures of liberation and pride. And I think of the statistical reality that I do have blood ancestors who were queer and trans and who are cheering me on from wherever they are. I hope to one day be more at peace with my complicated inheritances from my biological family, and maybe they can be more integrated into the inheritances from my chosen family. I would like to offer a blessing for those who are struggling with this as well. May we continue to strive to be more like Neville, who is using his inheritance to make his parents proud, or Hermione, who's taking her chosen family's inheritance to fight for justice and peace. Let us also consider the Mariettas and the Percys, and even the Dracos, who struggle with the inheritances, good and bad, that they've received. Wow, Rachel, I so appreciate this beautiful voicemail and also just the 
incredible resilience and courage that I hear in your story. And I love that you point us to inheritance is not just from our families, that we get to choose who we inherit from, right? The strength and the wisdom and the leadership of people who maybe are not our blood relations, but are our, our soul kin, perhaps. So thank you for for saying that. And as difficult as it is, I think, and, and this is not to excuse or in any way negate the true horrors of white supremacy and homophobia and all the, the challenges that you listed, but there is something in you and your story which enables you to share this powerful testimony that you just did, that allows you to speak across lines of suffering in which people perhaps can hear you who otherwise would not have heard an invitation to to transform those inheritances in the way that I hear you transforming them. So all I can say really is thank you for interrupting that cycle and for offering a new inheritance, even if perhaps not to your children, but certainly towards us in this moment and to, I'm sure, so many people in your life who who are grateful for that. So thanks for that beautiful voicemail. Yeah, I also want to really affirm your challenging reflections upon the problems and difficulties and, and tragic histories of inheritance. One thing that I was thinking as Casper was speaking is that Inheritance is a, a way that the past tries to make a claim upon the present and the future. Mm. And that is a past that we can either accept or reject. Oh, I love that, Matt. Even when people kind of leave wills, it's the past trying to exert yeah. an influence on, on the present and future. But we have the, the choice to either accept or reject that past. And also, as it sounds as if you are already doing in really commendable ways, to embrace a different present and choose a new future. And that's really beautiful and important. So thank you. Mm. Our next voicemail is from Emily. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. This is Emily calling from Aberdeen, Scotland. I'm recording this after listening to your most recent episode on the theme of inheritance. And in the episode, you briefly mentioned how Harry and Hermione are growing up. They're starting to be seen as adults. The centres, at least, definitely talk about how they're no longer foals, as they say. Uh, but then later on, Vanessa then argues that they should be at least partially excused for their kind of entitled attitude towards the centaurs because as children they have a right to believe that the adults are just there to help them. And this is something I've definitely noticed throughout your podcast. You you both often emphasise the fact that the trio and their classmates are children. I think to more easily forgive them for their mistakes and also to condemn those that don't really support them. Um, and I think that's definitely right. I mean, when you're younger, you're still figuring out how to live in the world, which is hard. Um, but I find it interesting that this is the first time really I've heard you mention holding Harry or the others to the standards of an adult. I think it's important that we realise that a lot of our characters are 16 at this point in the series, and it's made me wonder at what point we start treating children as adults. You know, where I come from, 16 is the age where you can vote in some elections, leave school, live alone, start a family even. I'm definitely not saying that 16 is when you become a fully formed adult. I think that the fact that adulthood is placed at different ages and different cultures really only proves that it's a, a gradual process. But I would hope that to make some of these big decisions, you're held to the same moral standards as an adult. So, yeah, I'm just wondering your thoughts on the transition from child to adulthood. I'm sure it's something we'll have to think about more in book six and seven. And it's something I'm thinking about in my own life. You know, I'm 19, legally an adult. I left home when I was 17, but I still feel like a child in so many ways. Uh, lastly, I just want to thank you for the podcast. It's been a real comfort to me in some stressful times. And I look forward to hearing you every week. Bye. Emily, I love this question. It's so good. And coming from the UK as well, like I, I totally get what you're saying, where there's these different age boundaries, right? And one of the things that I think 
about a lot is how we have lost some of the traditional markers of the stage of life where you're a child and the stage of life where you're an adult, which would often depend on the readiness of the individual, right? If we think about those ritual moments in different cultural religious contexts, there might be a coming of age ceremony. And so it allowed for that gradual process and allowed for that personal difference. And I think that's something that's really missing in our world. Now, I don't know if you can create national laws around like, have you gone through your adulting process? And OK, now you're ready to vote. But but there is something maybe just like you're saying, kind of in, in your own life, you feel hurtled into a stage of life, which maybe none of us have really been prepared for. Right. And, that, and that's why so many of us, I'm 32, but I feel like adulting is still really hard, right? Like doing your taxes for the first time is super stressful. And there's just a lot of ways in which we haven't really found a way to prepare one another for those things in our culture. I don't know, Matt, what what do you think? I mean, I think that's right. I, I also think that, and this is not to diminish the reality of human development and that sort of frontal lobes develop through adolescence and so forth, right? But much like you, I'm a little bit older than you. I'm I'm sort of Generation X, not quite millennial, right? I'm 42. And I still feel like what has made me an adult is not that I feel like an adult, is mm. that people treat me like one. Right. And that started happening in my early 20s. And I don't really feel any different on the inside than I didn't. I mean, I get more backaches maybe, but I don't really feel <laughs> developmentally, emotionally any different. It's just yeah. people treat me differently. So really it's this age group where the Harry Potter characters are is the point at which this starts to happen. And where not universally, not in everything, but we start to get treated more like adults in some situations. We start getting accustomed to what that treatment feels like. It doesn't always feel good, right? But one thing that makes me think about is just the way that this treatment is unequally distributed among right. different peoples. We are more willing to treat as children those who come from positions of privilege than we are to those who do not, right? Especially, I mean, white people, <laughs> to Absolutely. be frank. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, th I think that would maybe be my answer, Emily, is even if any age or any moment is going to not work for everyone, the least we can do is be consistent about if we're allowing you to drink, then we're allowing you to vote, right? If, mm -hmm. if we're going to enable you to die for your country, then you should be able to vote. So that there's consistency in terms of that, that age range. But also, as you're saying, Matt, that we don't treat some people's children as children and some people's children right. as adults, that there's a consistency and a, and, a, and a fairness across those markers. Our next voicemail is from Ariel, whose husband I met way back in 2014. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. My name is Arielle. I just listened to the episode Blessing Molly Weasley, and I had some thoughts that I wanted to share with you. Because like Molly Weasley, I am a knitter. For me, knitting is a sacred practice. It is also a form of self-care, and I have always suspected that it is the same for Molly. When I knit something for someone that I love, I think of them as I make the stitches. It is a way that I cultivate compassion and gratitude. I weave my love for them into the shape of the wool. And I have always felt that hand-knitted items carry a magic with them because of this. Knitting for my loved ones is a way for me to wrap them in warmth and protect them as they walk through the world. As we know, this is in alignment with Molly's every action, but especially with the Christmas sweaters. We will see a moment in book seven that could easily go unnoticed when Harry pulls on layer after layer of Molly's sweaters to keep out the cold when he and Hermione are living in a tent hunting for horcruxes. 
I think that during this time, when Harry is in such an extreme and desperate moment in his life, he carries the protection of two mothers. Molly is knitting for the revolution, and she is keeping them safe and warm in a very real way. And I want to bless her for that. Thank you for this podcast. My husband and I always listen to it together while I sit up in bed and drink coffee and knit first thing in the morning. And we love sharing that special time together. Thank you, Ariel, for that lovely voicemail. One thing that brought to mind for me was uh, the idea of attention and how just the act of paying close attention to a thing in the world is itself prayerful. There's a, a thinker named Simone Weil who spoke about this, who said that to give your full attention to something is an act of prayer. And that actually all the world around us is sacred. It's just we usually aren't paying enough attention. So to develop a practice whereby you attend to something closely and patiently and lovingly, and through attention to that thing in patience and love, give forth your attention to others through these gifts of knitted goods that you deliver is such a lovely spiritual practice and such an important one. So thank you for for the sharing of your gifts with those you love. That's great, Matt. I really love that. And also because, you know, you, you mentioned two mothers, Ariel, obviously Molly with those beautiful sweaters and then Lily. But I'm also thinking perhaps not the love, but certainly the protection of two other mothers are going to be so important for Harry. Petunia, of course, who we've talked about in all the problematic ways, but nonetheless her her welcoming Harry into her home. And then at the end of book seven, Narcissa, who is willing to kind of risk the wrath of Voldemort to protect her own son and therefore also Harry. So I'm just suddenly seeing as you're knitting that that wool together, I'm also seeing kind of these different mothers showing up in the books, being knit together around Harry in all these different ways of protecting him. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Our next voicemail is from another Rachel. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. This is Rachel from Brooklyn. I just finished listening to your podcast on book five, chapter 32, on the theme of redemption. And you were talking about how Ron had matured and learned some lessons um, and mentioned that that's how he eventually is able to become a worthy partner for Hermione. Um, And that reminded me of a story from my own life. When I was a teenager, there was this boy who had a really big crush on me. And I thought he was really dorky and I wasn't interested. And he told me that he had a crush on me. And I behaved pretty badly. I led him on. I didn't really tell him I wasn't interested. And I did a bunch of overall kind of silly teenage stuff. And we stayed friends. And about three years ago, we actually started dating. And six months ago today, we got married. And I think that our relationship works in part because I've matured and I've redeemed myself for my bad behavior. But more importantly, I think our relationship works because my husband has had this really amazing ability to forgive and really love and accept me for who I am today without holding against me the things I did or said 15 years ago. I feel really supported to change, and I think I've learned from him how to support and love the people in my life to grow and change. So even though Ron does grow and learn and redeem himself, I want to offer a blessing to Hermione and to my wonderful husband for accepting people for who they are in the moment and not who they were when they were a dumb kid. So thanks so much for the podcast. Love you guys. Bye-bye. Rachel, I love this. And my two rules for a successful marriage are, well, maybe there's three. Snuggles, talk about everything, and constant forgiveness. So you have at least one of those already nailed down. I love that idea of of both a generosity of spirit in kind of changing and, and learning a different way of being with someone else, but also the other person's capacity to forgive and to to see you who you are for today so that's wonderful i'm so glad you got married congratulations yes congratulations rachel on six months of marriage one of the things i was thinking about as i listened to you speak was that you know often we think about redemption as sort of undoing the past and erasing the past and i what i really love about the way you told your story is how it wasn't about erasing a past it was about incorporating a past into a future full of new possibilities full of new love that has to be more, I think, what redemption and forgiveness actually is, where we are honest about what the past was and what its hurts were, but also where we take it into our lives and it becomes opens us up into new possibilities for life and love with one another. That really goes back to what we were talking about with inheritance as well. Would, would you say a word about how redemption and inheritance conspire? Or like the, the role of forgiveness when, when we do inherit something that has caused pain. One thing that's interesting is is how financial terms govern the way we talk about these things. Inheritance is a financial term. Redemption is a financial term. Really? Where does redemption come from financially? Well, you, like when you redeem a redeem a, a check. loss, redeem a check, right? Ever, right? Huh. And when you think about that, money is not a great way to think about our past hurts and our past lives, mm. right? Because you, you can pay a debt and it's gone, uh, but hurts 
that you have either caused to someone else or that have been visited upon you aren't so easily erased. When we think about redemption and inheritance, maybe in personal and relational terms, then we shouldn't be thinking about erasing the past or undoing or paying debts. We should think about how do we take this thing which cannot be erased forward with us into a new life, into a future which is full of possibility and, and love. Mm. Our final voicemail today is from Mike. Hello, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. This is Mike from San Augustine, Florida. I'm a newlywed, and as you might imagine, I have love on the brain right now. And I wanted to talk about love and the Harry Potter series. One of the main reasons Harry Potter is so important to me, and I imagine is important to other people, is because it shows the power of love and that love can triumph over hate, something I think is especially too important to remember right now. However, having just reread the series, I realized that none of the characters actually say, I love you, in the books. In fact, there are only two times someone explicitly says, I love you. In the last book, when Harry comments on Dudley's goodbye to him, he said, it was like an I love you coming from Dudley. And in the sixth book, when Hermione forgives Ron, he says, I love you, Hermione, but in a joking, friendly manner, though it is clear that Hermione enjoys this. But all of the other mentions of love in the books are told secondhand, primarily Dumbledore telling Harry how much his parents loved him, or they're part of an internal dialogue where Harry is thinking about his love for someone else. And while I understand that it's a book and perhaps it's better to show rather than tell, it really bothers me that the characters never say, I love you. Perhaps it's because they find themselves in a war and in difficult situations, but if anything, that's all the more reason to say it. So I just wanted to end this message with a blessing for anyone who finds it difficult to say I love you to the people they care about. It is so important to tell the people we love that we love them. So that everyone out there who's having a hard time or who's struggling, I love you. And to the team at Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, I love you too. Thanks, y'all. Mike, that is too cute. Oh, I so appreciate that. And it's so true. And why don't we say that more to each other? It's absurd. I remember my dad when I was, maybe I was 15 or something. My dad went on this kind of like course to kind of learn about compassion. And, and it's called the Hoffman process. It's a wonderful thing if you want to send parents on a transformative experience. And he came home and I remember the first thing he did when he came home was said, I love you. And it wasn't that he didn't say that often, but it was such a it was such a striking memory for me. And so I love your invitation for all of us to just be reckless. Well, not perhaps reckless, but certainly capacious to use a Matt word in how much we tell people we love each other. That's wonderful. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike, for your voicemail as well. I, my family is a big, a family that likes to verbalize our love for each other a lot. But one thing that, that's interesting because I'm Japanese and actually Japanese people don't say I love you. I'm actually wondering if that's an affinity between English and Japanese culture, this <laughs> sort of covering up of emotions. There's a documentary that came out a few years ago about survivors of the tsunami in Japan. Mm. There's a man who set up a phone booth in his backyard and and people could come to the phone booth and make phone calls. Wow. It was This phone booth was connected to nothing. They could come to the phone booth and make phone calls to their dead loved ones. And what was so heartbreaking about these recorded phone calls is that these family members never said, I love you. Like they would be widowers speaking to a dead spouse in the, the great beyond saying, are you cold? Make sure you dress warmly enough. Like all these different ways that Japanese people have been acculturated to express love just through like 
constant little kind reminders to care for yourself. That was the only way they knew how to say I love you. But it also got me thinking, that's also what Japanese people hear when those things are, are said. So we should tell each other we love one another, but also we should think about all the different ways that we can say I love you to one another without actually saying the words and do those too, because those really communicate our love as well. Mm, show and tell. Perhaps. Show and tell. That's right. <laughs> well, to everyone who's listened to this episode and to all of you who join us on this great adventure through the seven books, um, we love you. Thank you very, very much for, for being with us. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about this episode. Come and join over a thousand people who are supporting us on Patreon and leave us a review on iTunes. I read every single one. You can also send us a voicemail, and we hope to see you soon at one of our live shows. We'll be in New York City on September 9th, DC on November 7th, and St. Louis on December 19th. We are taking two weeks off over the next two weeks, but fear not. We will return for season six, reading The Half-Blood Prince, and we'll start on July 25th. This episode was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is the wonderful Ariana Nedelman. Our associate producer is Chelsea Ersin. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of Nightville Presents. Thanks to everyone who left us a voicemail this week, to Julia Argy, Maggie Needham, Stephanie Purcell, and thank you very much to Matt Potts for being with us. We'll see you all in a few weeks. Bye, everyone. Because I, I still have never done the sacred practices that we do with the Bible. Really? And it would be really interesting to do it and just see what would happen. Spin-off podcast, reading the Bible as a sacred text. Reading the Bible as a sacred text. Oh. Wow. That would be wild. <laughs>